An ancient killer still roams the world, but it has also served as the defender of both Africa and Rome. Welcome to ReachMD Book Club. I'm your host, Dr. John Russell, and we're speaking with author Sonia Shaw about her book, The Fever, How Malaria Has Ruled Mankind for 500,000 Years. Sonia, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So how did you first become interested in malaria? Well, I'd always have a thing about mosquitoes. Um, ever since I was a small child, uh, mosquitoes, you know, lots of little kids, their dad will kind of pretend to be a scary bear or, or um, you know, a monster or something like that. Um, well, my dad used to pretend to be a giant mosquito and chase us around the house because I, li- I was huh. terrified of mosquitoes. <laughs> and, and I kind of attribute that to having visited India a lot as a young child. Um, that's where my relatives all lived. You know, my parents had come over to, to the U.S. And, and, you know, before I was born. Um, but we went back a lot in the summers. And when we went back, I always had to sleep under this, like, hot and sweaty mosquito net while all my cousins were allowed to sleep out in the open, you know, and have this nice cool breeze on them. And they even would sleep up on the terrace. I wasn't allowed to, you know, I, you can't sleep on the terrace with a mosquito net. You need to be, like, you know, have, have like, walls around you so you can tie it up. Um, so I was really jealous of them, and it was all the mosquitoes' fault. And um, and then I also had allergic reactions to mosquitoes, and then I had to take, you know, the horrible malaria pills back then, which gave you weird dreams and, you know. Um, and so all of this kind of was tied together with, like, mosquitoes. And, and indeed, that is what I learned when I started doing research on this book, that mosquitoes are this kind of ancient enemy of humankind. And, and because they carry these very virulent diseases, and um, certainly the most ancient and widespread is, is definitely malaria. So can you review some of the biology of malaria as a disease? So malaria is caused by a, a protozoan parasite called plasmodium, and it uh, lives half its life inside mosquitoes, which, you know, a cold-blooded insect, um, and then it lives, it, the other half of its life cycle takes place in whatever kind of warm-blooded host the mosquito bites. We have about five different species of malaria parasites that specialize in infecting humans, but there are, this is a very successful parasite, and there are malarias that focus on birds. There's malarias of chimpanzees. There's malarias of lizards. There's malarias of mice. There's malarias of rabbits. There's, like, all different kinds of malarias. Lots of different animals have their own malarias um, because this is, a, you know, this is just a very old disease that's been extremely successful, like, in sort of um, in a biological sense, right, for all of us. So we've you know, one estimate is malaria is responsible for about one half of all human deaths since the Stone Age. Um, so we've probably had malaria since we evolved from the apes, because, um, of course, apes have their own malarias, and then, you know, we've evolved with malaria. Um, they've been along, it's been alongside us um, since we emerged as a species, and to this day, malaria infects about 300 million people every year and kills around, like, somewhere around a million people. And I think when we think about malaria, I think we most think about the African continent. So how has malaria, the infection, really kind of shaped life in Africa? Oh, well, you know, Africa is sort of the stronghold, of course. Like about 90% of deaths from malaria occur in sub-Saharan Africa. Um, and, And I think it's really critical in keeping countries poor. Um, you know, we know that, of course, if you're poor, you're more likely to get malaria. 
um, because you're more likely to live on sort of marginal lands that are poorly drained, which means there's a lot of mosquitoes around you. Um, you most likely live in a home that doesn't have screened windows and screened doors and, you know, it's open to the air. You may not have electricity, so you might be outdoors a lot, even in the evenings, et cetera. So all these things about poverty kind of lend themselves to malaria infections. So poverty is certainly you know, a risk factor for malaria. But what we now also know is that malaria itself can cause poverty, and that's actually been documented by um, the economist Jeff Sachs at Columbia. And he found that malaria alone, just the fact of having malaria in a society, even if you take out, you know, all the other confounding factors, it constricts GDP growth by 1.3% every year. Um, and that's year after year after year after year. Um, so you think about these countries in Africa, you know, the cradle of humankind. They've had malaria from the beginning, right? Um, and year after year after year, you have this drain on your society. Um, it's, and it's not just because, you know, people are sick and it costs money. I mean, malaria hits most hard during harvest season. So exactly when, you know, people need to be out kind of collect, reaping the benefits of all the investment they've put into their crops, they're sick in bed with the fever. Um, it preys most heavily on pregnant women and young children, which in various ways can lead societies to not invest as much in those people. Um, and then also we know that malaria is a contributing factor to deaths from all other causes, too. Um, and this is something that came out in, like, the 1920s when, um, you know, we didn't have good ways to, um, you know, control all these different diseases. So we, mining companies in Central Africa in the 1920s, um, they were able to uh, kind of engineer the landscape to get rid of malaria in these mining, you know, camps. They still had malnutrition and, you know, dirty water and, you know, bad housing, like all the things that make people sick from everything else. They still, they still had all that. Like, they didn't fix all of that stuff, but they did get rid of malaria. And just by getting rid of that one thing, this one disease, um, mortality from everything else went down. So, so it, it, it's really this drain on the health and well-being of societies, um, and, and we can see that now. So you can imagine over time how that compounds. It really goes a long way, in my mind, to explaining why some societies are, are poor and, so, and some are, are not. And it really lent itself to the development evolutionarily of uh, a lot of blood dyscrasias, correct? Exactly. So about, I think, one in 14 people alive today have um, these genetic mutations that first arose in the fight against malaria, like these various red blood cell deformities that make it more difficult for the parasite to, to enter the red blood cell, because that's what it's after is the, you know, the iron inside of our blood cells. Um, so sickle cell, of course, is the sickle cell anemia is, of course, the most famous one, but there's a number of other red blood cell deformities that are still around today, you know. And these are things that really should, you know, according to natural selection theory, should die out, right? These are gene mutations that actually give you anemia or make you sick or make it more likely that your children will not reproduce, not live long enough to reproduce or will be weaker, et cetera. These are not genes that would normally thrive in our populations, but they do because by changing our red blood cells, we've been able to survive malaria better, and we still have so much malaria. So really, in a perverse way, though, malaria was a bit of a protector of Africa and even Rome, correct? That's right. So there was a saying in Rome, um, when Rome couldn't defend herself by means of the sword, 
she could defend herself by means of the fever. And, um, and that's because Rome was, you know, malarious from the very beginning of the founding of the, of the city of Rome. Um, and people there, because if you, you know, if you're routinely exposed, you do acquire immunity to malaria. Um, you'll, get, you'll still get sick. You'll still be sort of weakened by it, but you're not going to die. Death becomes much, much less likely, um, especially, you know, if you survive infancy. So, and this is the pattern that we see in lots of sub-Saharan Africa as well. And this is true, and this is true in, in Rome from the very beginning. Um, but all the northern armies that wanted to sack Rome, they didn't have that immunity because they were kind of outside of the range, the climatic range in which malaria transmission was possible, right? Those mosquitoes can't bite year-round in those cold places. So... Well, they would, these armies would try to come and sack Rome, and they had to cross through all of these wetlands around the city of Rome that were highly malarious. And it actually repelled them again and again because they would just get so sick. Cause it would take like days and days to get across these you know, uh, malarious lands before they got into the city, and it repelled these major armies again and again. So, so malaria in that way, the superior immunity that the Romans had to malaria helped protect them from, from invasion. So how did malaria find its way to the Americas? So malaria probably came over to the Americas from the very first, with the very first European settlers who came over in 1606 and settled Jamestown. We know those people, um, some of them at least, came from Essex and Kent, two counties in England that were highly malarious. We know that. Um, And we know that these individuals were actually infected with malaria when they came over because they talked about it in their letters and their diaries. So there's documentary evidence that they were, in fact, infected. Um, And then we also know that within a few years of settling Jamestown, um, a new disease that they called the seasoning um, sort of took root in all those mid-Atlantic colonies. And this was a, a characteristic bout of fever followed by chills. And if you survived it, you would grow increasingly immune to it, which would be called seasoned. You'd become seasoned to yeah. it. Um, and so, and so this, the seasoning kind of took off as like the major American disease um, throughout the mid-Atlantic, of course, all the southern colonies, but even up into New England. Um, so right from the beginning, and this is probably Vivax malaria, which is one of the two strains of malaria that cause most of the world's malaria. Um, and it's a, it's a less deadly form of the disease compared to falciper malaria, which is the tropical form of the disease. It's more common in, in, uh, you know, in, the, in the tropics and in, in sub-Saharan Africa. It's the major parasite there. Um, and that came over in, you know, with the slave trade. So if you're just tuning in, this is ReachMD Book Club. I'm your host, Dr. John Russell, and we're talking with author Sonia Shaw about her book, The Fever. So how did the search for a pharmacologic weapon uh, begin? Well, this, the, that goes back a really long way. We've known how to cure malaria for an awful long time. Um, the first real drug that, you know, the first specific drug, I think, for anything was... Um, the bark of the cinchona tree. And this was discovered in Peru, in the cloud forest of Peru, by Jesuit missionaries in the 1600s. Um, and it had been used in, by local people for um, their fevers. But, of course, they didn't have malaria back, you know, um, before Europeans came. Um, then they did. And so the Jesuits discovered this bark uh, from Native people who were there, and they brought it back to Europe um, where it became a huge hit. And it was the, the 
they powd- they would dry and powder the bark of this tree and use it as a, a fever cure for malaria. And we now know that the active ingredient in that is indeed quinine, which is still used in, you know, still a recommended drug for uh, by the WHO for malaria today. So how did we conquer malaria so much here in the West? Well, we had malaria all up and down this country for a long time, many centuries, and then we slowly kind of, you know, destroyed a lot of the landscape that sustains it. We we paved over about half of all of our wetlands, um, and this, of course, is the kind of habitat that mosquitoes like to live in. So we got rid of a lot of our mosquito habitat. That was part of it. But then also, through economic development, we started building better houses and better roads. And with better houses, we had screened windows and screened doors. And then we started, you know, bringing electricity into especially rural areas, you know, in, um, in the south. And we had uh, malaria in the south up until the 1920s. And it was really sustained by sharecroppers, you know, sharecroppers living on marginal, poorly drained lands um, with no, no electricity. So they lived in shacks uh, around stagnant water, and they were outside a lot. Um, and they didn't have good shoes, and we now know that you know mosquitoes love the smell of smelly feet. So, um, you know, they were highly exposed to mosquitoes, and malaria transmission had been ongoing right up until the 1920s. And then we had these big, you know, federal programs to to kind of change that way of life. You know, the Agricultural Adjustment Act, the um, Tennessee Valley Authority, all of these federal programs that were aimed at lifting people out of rural poverty and bringing electricity and mechanization to these farms. And it really ended the sharecropping way of life. And when it did that, it, it ended malaria, too. I mean, it ended that malarious way of life. How big a role did DDT play? So by the time DDT came online, DDT, of course, was developed after World War II. And, um, and we did do a whole DDT anti-malarial campaign in the United States. Um, but having read the documents of the um, doctors and scientists who directed that campaign, um, and that was done by the Malaria Control and War Areas uh, Agency, which is the precursor of the Centers for Disease Control today. So the Centers for Disease Control itself began as an anti-malarial organization. And the reason they did the DDT campaign at that time was not because there was a lot of malaria in the United States, but because they were worried that returning soldiers from the battlefields of World War II in malarious places would bring malaria back to the United States. So they're trying to protect the country against new introductions of the disease um, because the disease itself was basically a vanishing disease. In fact, they tried to do a baseline study to see how much malaria was already there before they started the DDD campaign, and they, they did, couldn't even find enough cases for to get that baseline. So it already was pretty much gone by the time DDT came on. Um, one CDC doctor actually called malaria a dying dog. So I think, I think one of the great challenges of controlling malaria worldwide is we have so many folks living in extreme poverty at one end, and then we have folks like us in the United States who don't see this fatal disease, who this does not resonate. So how, how do we reconcile kind of getting rid of this scourge on mankind? It's a huge sort of cognitive dissonance that, uh, you know, the people who have the money to control this disease and the resources live in places where we don't have it. And in our conception of, this, of malaria as like this horrible killer disease is not how people on the ground in malaria societies actually view the disease. And this creates all kinds of challenges in the kinds of interventions that we come up with. 
Um, and I think the answer is really to look at malaria not as a single disease, but as a, you know a, a thousand different diseases, which is what one of the early malariologists had had noted, you know, back you know in the beginning of the 20th century, that there's no one solution to malaria that will work everywhere. It's it's the disease of the landscape in a lot of ways, and I think if local communities are empowered to um, understand the local ecology of the disease where they live, there can often be very simple solutions. It's just that they're really specific to each place. So, for example, um, in Dar es Salaam in Tanzania, um, local scientists discovered that the malarial mosquitoes were breeding in, um, like, drainage ditches that were blocked with garbage. And so the malarial intervention became, well, let's hire some you know, some teams of people to just clear the garbage out of the ditches. And they did that, and the water started running, and it washed all the mosquito eggs away, and it, and it actually worked as a malaria control um, intervention. You know, malaria started to go down. And, and that's just a very simple thing. But it, it wouldn't work everywhere. You know, it worked in that one community, um, and it relied on local people doing, coming up with a local solution. So I think until we have a vaccine, um, that we really need to kind of empower local communities to come up with um, things that will work malaria where they are. How have the Gates Foundation impacted malaria worldwide? Well, the Gates Foundation has thrown a ton of money and has funded a ton of research into new malarial interventions. And I think um, one lesson of some of our past campaigns against malaria that have really kind of failed disastrously, if you consider the fact that we have so much malaria still, (laughs) um, is that we need to keep doing research on this disease even as we're attacking it um, because it is a moving target. And the Gates Foundation has been instrumental in funding that research and also instrumental in bringing malaria back to, um, you know, the global agenda and public attention where it had really fallen off the agenda for, you know, throughout the 70s and 80s and early 90s when it just was not something people talked about, not on the, you know, global health um, purview at all, like it really had dropped out. And people like Bill, Bill and Melinda Gates and, and their money and the World Bank and the, um, you know, diff- different partnerships have come together that ha- the Global Fund uh, for TB, malaria and AIDS, uh, and HIV rather, um, you know, these all these sort of public-private partnerships have, have been formed around malaria and everything. And I think part of it is an understanding that malaria is not just a uh, you know, public health problem, it's, it's an economic problem. It's a de- problem of development. And if we allow all these societies to be plagued with this disease that just steadily impoverishes them, we're not going to have a growing global economy. I mean, we need these people to be part, you know, to be consumers and workers and part of this global economy if we want the economy to keep growing, which is what, you know, all these people want. So uh, malaria has become something that is being adopted as not just, you know, for health reasons, but also as an investment, you know, in, in economic development. The book is The Fever. We've been talking with author Sonia Shaw. It's an amazing read. I think it's a, it's a great book. And thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you. This is Dr. John Russell. You've been listening to ReachMD Book Club. To download this program or others in this series, please visit ReachMD.com. Thanks again for listening.